morning. Um, forgive me, I like to read mine. Uh, but today we're going to talk about bread. And I have two kinds here. And can anyone tell me the difference between these two kinds of bread? Yeast. Lots of little air pockets in there. So one is all puffed up, and one is flat like a cracker. And that's because one was made with yeast and one wasn't. Now, yeast isn't the only thing that makes bread rise. We have other kinds of leaven, like baking powder or baking soda. Uh, but the type of leaven that was used in Bible times was a sourdough starter made with flour and water and set out in a container. Yeast spores that are all around us in the air land on it and start munching away. The starter begins to bubble as the spores put out carbon dioxide gas. And this starter can be kept alive for a long time by feeding it a little flour and water each day. When the Jews were ready to bake bread, they mixed their flour, water, and a little of their starter together and presto. The bread rose as the yeast multiplied and ate its way through the loaf, pumping out hot air. So, why does Jesus tell his disciples to beware the yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees in today's scripture? Well, no one was better at pumping out hot air than the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They were the biggest gas bags of the day. Do this, don't do that. But they weren't following the rules that they were forcing on others. In Matthew 23, Jesus gives seven examples of their hypocrisy. He lays them out in no uncertain terms. He's warning his disciples that it only takes a pinch of pompous sin to puff them up too. The Pharisees claim to represent God. The disciples actually do. How easy would it be for them to swell up with pride? So this made me wonder, is leaven always bad? So I grabbed my Bible shovel and I started digging you all have a Bible shovel, right? If you don't, you need to get one because that's how you find Bible gold. Jesus' warning about the leaven of the Pharisees and Herod is in three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Paul warns the Galatians and Corinthians to get rid of it, that boasting is bad and sinful pride will work its way through the whole church if they let it. In the Old Testament, Exodus 12 says, Purge the old leaven before Passover. Get rid of the sourdough starter and anything made with it. Get rid of the seor and the hametz under penalty of being cut off from the congregation. Even today, there's a Jewish Passover tradition of a hametz hunt. The house gets thoroughly clean, then ten pieces of bread are hidden, wrapped in paper so no crumbs get left behind. That way you'll have some hametz to search for, find, renounce, and burn. Getting rid of your leaven is a serious thing. Is leaven ever good in the Bible? Well, yes. In Matthew 13's parable of the woman baking bread, Jesus says that the kingdom of heaven is like yeast mixed into 60 pounds of flour until all of it is leavened. In the Old Testament, the Jews would begin making a fresh batch of sourdough starter once the seven days of Passover were complete. We know that leaven outside of Passover is okay. It shows up in Scripture seven weeks later at the Feast of Pentecost. Leviticus 23 says that two loaves made with leaven and fine flour were offered to the Lord. Pentecost
just as also when God appeared to Moses on Mount Sinai, giving his law to his people. So Passover and Pentecost have many symbols. The one we know best is Jesus' sacrifice for us, the death of a pure, unblemished lamb, whose blood is spread on the lintel of our lives, so that death must pass us by. But what are the symbols of leaven and bread? Let's list them. Number one, God says, purge your house of all old leaven and anything made with it. Number two, for seven days, eat unleavened bread, or matzah. Matzah is flour and water, mixed and cooked within 18 minutes, so there's no chance of yeast impurity. Matzah is pure and humble. It's called the bread of poverty and the bread of affliction. It's cooked fast. There's no time for it to rise because God's people are leaving Egypt too sweet, and they're not going back. After Number three, after seven days, begin making a new leaven starter mix. Number four, seven weeks later for Pentecost, make two loaves with the new leaven. Use the first and best flour of the new harvest. These are for the offerings of peace and thanksgiving. Then God appears and gives his law, the Ten Commandments, through Moses at Mount Sinai. He gives his word. So what do these things mean for Jesus' disciples and for us? Well, number one, God tells us to turn away from our old sin, our pride and our bitterness, our old leaven. We're to get rid of every bit of it. Number two, when we turn towards Jesus, ask him into our hearts and lives and begin to follow him, we're eating the matzah, the bread of life, we become one with Jesus, and he makes our spirits clean. We're leaving behind the Egypt of this world, and we're not going back. Number three, like the disciples in John 20, 22, we then receive the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit brings the new leaven of the kingdom of God. And number four, at Pentecost, the disciples are a first fruits offering. They're at peace with God and thankful that we are no longer separated from him. They receive the power of the Holy Spirit and go on to be leavened themselves, just like in the parable, leavening the world with the kingdom of God. We are to continue that mission today, spreading the good news and allowing the Holy Spirit to leaven our lives. So don't be a lump. Work towards the time when Jesus returns. Sin is purged. And the kingdom of God is fully restored. Because that's the day that we'll all be living together in a leavened heaven. Lord, we give thanks for your kingdom and for your cleansing power and for your Holy Spirit in our lives. And pray that you be with us every day, Lord. In Jesus' name. Heavenly Father, thank you for meeting us here already. We pray that you will speak to us through your word. Um, that you will help me to speak clearly and help our ears and our hearts to be open to what you have for us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, last week was kind of weird. <laughs> it seemed like we were going to have a big crazy storm, and um, we really kind of didn't. On um, Maybe some of us had more of a storm than others, but... Um, I was getting ready to drive to church. I got in the car. I got on the road, and it was torrentially downpouring. I couldn't see a thing. And so I said, this is crazy. 
and canceled it, and then it just, that was like the worst that it got all day. <laughs> I, well, I think I did the right thing, and part of why I think that is because I think, I know that I have been really kind of exhausted lately. There's a whole bunch of stuff, there's a whole bunch of stuff going on in the, on in the world that's stressing all of us out. Plus, I think a lot of us have things going on in our personal lives that are stressing us out, too. And I almost felt like God was saying, you guys all need a break. <laughs> so just take it. Um, and that was good for me because, like I said, it's been th things around my life have been kind of stressful lately. And, and I found myself to be kind of grumpy. I don't know if you remember a couple of weeks ago when I asked, what happens to our godliness when we get tired? And Paul said, goes right out the window. And I'm going to say that have, I have been noticing that happening. Um, I suspect, though, that there are ways to still be righteous, even if we're grumpy. And the reason I think that is because in this chapter, Jesus seems really grumpy to me. Um, and so then I had to ask myself, I was like, why does Jesus seem grumpy to me in Matthew chapter 16? Is it because, am I reading that Jesus is grumpy because I'm grumpy? Or am I noticing that Jesus is grumpy because I'm grumpy? So if I know the kind of the reasons why I'm feeling a little on edge and a little bit grumpy, why might Jesus get grumpy? These are kind of good questions for us to ask, I think, it's another way of, like we said a few weeks ago, connecting with Jesus and his weakness. He connects with us and our weakness. And so this is another way to kind of, Jesus is God and he's also human. And so what does it mean that he is human? Let's think back to where we've been with Jesus so far. He has had some what we called micro rests, but as far as we know, up until this point, he hasn't had a real good, restorative, sustaining break. And the cross is starting to really come into focus with him. We know that before he fed the 5,000, um, or after he fed the 5,000, before he walked on the water back to his disciples, um, he did have some time with the Father, but it seems like, based on everything that happens after that, it seems like maybe part of what happened in his time with the Father was that the Father kind of made clearer what was coming, which is the cross. And so while that time with the Father would have restored him in some ways, because he really loves the Father, in other ways, it's kind of sobering, and it's a little maybe stressful and even scary to look towards what's ahead. And another reason Jesus might be grumpy is he has been showing and telling both his friends and his enemies the truth about himself and the kingdom over and over and over again in different ways for ages, and it doesn't really seem like anybody's getting it. And in this chapter, we see people still not getting it. First, the Pharisees come up to him again, and they say, Jesus, give us a sign from the heavens that you are the Messiah. Might be time to remind us, we talked about this probably two years ago, but um, the Hebrew conception of the heavens is not this, it's not exactly this totally separate place. It's kind of an overlay. There are two realms. There's the earthly realm and the heavenly realm. And, and the 
Heavenly Realm is actually nearby, but they also had this idea that it was kind of connected to the sky, and um, it's spiritual, we can't usually perceive it. And so these guys are basically saying, Jesus, if you're really from the Heavenly Realm, if that's really where you come from, then show us a sign from there so that we'll know. And this is the first reason why I think Jesus is grumpy, because he, his answer is a little bit snarky. He's basically saying, okay, you guys are asking for a sign from the heavens, which is connected to the sky. So he's like, okay, red sky at night, sailors delight, red sky in the morning, sailors take warning. May I present to you the heavens? He's talking about the sky, right? You see the signs, you know how to read those, you can interpret the heavens physically, but you're clueless when it comes to a sign from the heavens, the heavenly realm. And what he's implying by that sort of snarky, punny answer is you have already seen the signs over and over again, but you also haven't seen them at all. You're totally missing it. And they're totally missing it because they already have preconceived ideas of what the scriptures mean, and Jesus is not fitting into those. They would rather have their interpretation of a proper Sabbath maintained, and they would rather see proper Jewishness through hand-washing and obeying the teachings of the elders, and they would rather see a Jewish-only messianic banquet. And they haven't gotten any of that, and so they are missing all of the signs from the heavens. Jesus is basically saying, you would understand this better if I were giving you a weather report than your understanding about what I'm actually doing here. And Jesus is so fed up with this that he just gives them this really short mic drop answer. He says, a wicked and adulterous generation looks for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of Jonah, mic drop, Matthew tells us, then he went away. He doesn't even explain the sign of Jonah. He's just out of here. And the reason he doesn't explain the sign of Jonah is because in chapter 12, they had this exact same conversation, and he did explain the sign of Jonah, and he doesn't need to explain it again because they're already not paying attention, but if they paid attention to anything at all, they would remember that he said... For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and now something greater than Jonah is here. He doesn't say that this time, but they know the story of Jonah. And what he's implying is something about Jonah being in the fish for three days and three nights is like what is going to happen to him, which is another sign that this, the cross is becoming front and center for him. He cannot get this out of his mind. And what he's sort of implying by just referencing the sign of Jonah and walking away is, oh, okay, you want a sign from the heavens that really blows your preconceived ideas of scripture out of the water? Your Messiah is going to die. This is weighing on him. He probably, he seems upset in this chapter. He probably didn't even have it in him to re-explain the sign of Jonah. This is, getting, this is sitting on him heavily. 
because these guys are the ones who are going to make the sign of Jonah happen to him. And he's going to go through with it in part for them. I was talking to somebody recently about grace, and they said, I have a really hard time extending grace to people because it feels like they don't deserve it. And I was like, except that's the that's the point. <laughs> like, grace is never deserved. These guys don't deserve it, and Jesus is going to give it to them anyway. And that, he's choosing to do that, but it might make him grumpy. And besides that, the disciples are much better. So now he's on a boat, and the disciples forgot to bring bread, which means they must have distributed all the bread from all the other feedings where they had so much bread. And um, somehow they forgot, which you would think after all these bread stories, you would bread would be the first thing in your mind. Paul teases me when we go on road trips. I tend to get low blood sugar episodes, and I always need to have, like, snacks. But I never remember snacks. <laughs> Paul's always like, why did you not bring snacks? <laughs> so this is kind of like that. The disciples forgot the snacks. And they're talking about it. Oh, no, we forgot the snacks. And Jesus is sort of, he's, he's around. He's obviously kind of hearing this conversation, but he's still kind of stuck on his last interaction with the Pharisees. And he says, it's almost like he's, he's still thinking, they're talking over here, and he's like, be careful of the yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And like Paul said, there was, there's new yeast and there's old yeast. We've already seen Jesus talk about new wine. He's bringing the new wine of the kingdom. You can't put it in the old wineskins. This is a similar kind of metaphor. And he's saying the new yeast infiltrates the world with the life-giving values of the kingdom of the heavens. But the Pharisees and the Sadducees' old yeast is enslaving people, just like their ancestors were enslaved in Egypt. And the old yeast is also keeping the Pharisees and the Sadducees, but also the people under their influence, keeping them from reading the signs of the times. Jesus is aware that, as we've already seen, he is the prophesied prophet like Moses, who is delivering people. He's delivering primarily right now the disciples out of slavery of sin and out of slavery to dead tradition. But they're still susceptible to the old yeast because they came up in it. They grew up in it. It's part of what they it's part of their environment. And so they're still susceptible to it. They have to get rid of it. And like their ancestors in Egypt or coming out of Egypt who kept wanting to go back there, the disciples are in danger of maybe wanting to go back there. This is one of those situations where you've ever been in in the room where there's like a conversation happening and you're you think that you're in the same conversation and then it turns out you're talking about two totally different things this is like that <laughs> um, this is a wait what are you talking about what are we talking about kind of conversations the disciples hear him talk about yeast and they're like oh rats he knows we don't have any bread and so now jesus isn't dropping the mic anymore he's palming the face or at desk. Um, why are you talking about not having bread? Seriously, there's always enough bread. 
Have you not been around? There, did you notice that how many people we fed with bread? Also, I speak in parables and metaphors. How do you not understand that I'm not talking about literal bread here, you guys? This is frustrating. The Pharisees don't get it, but they're not his friends. But his friends are still not getting it. And then they're like, oh, oh, yeah, maybe he's not talking to us about bread, okay? Uh, the, the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees? Okay, Jesus, we got it. We don't like them either. <sighs> but, I mean, maybe it's not so, it's a surprise that Jesus is a little grumpy. It can be kind of frustrating when you're trying to communicate stuff and people aren't getting it. But finally, Jesus gets a break. They go to Caesarea Philippi, and we can imagine that maybe he's still a little thoughtful, a little pensive, and maybe a little discouraged, and he sits down with his buddies, and he's like, who do people say the Son of Man is? And they answer, and they're like, some say John the Baptist. We know who said he was like, who was John the Baptist? Crazy Herod. Others say Elijah. Still others say Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. So something we should probably keep in mind here, we often, we often take too seriously what other people think about us or say about us. I know I struggle with that a lot. Uh, but sometimes when we are discouraged, the best thing we can receive is comfort from our closest friends, the ones who know our heart the best. And I think this is another place where Jesus might be um, expressing, because he, even though these guys aren't always getting it, he basically trusts these guys, he loves these guys, and he's expressing a little bit of his human weakness. Help me out. Who do, you, who do people say that I am? And underlying this question is probably what's been underlying, an underlying question for Jesus for a while. Would these guys, who still need to be handheld through pretty much every single parable, be able to interpret the signs of the times any better than the Pharisees or the Sadducees? Well, Simon Peter answers, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus is so excited. Yes, my father told you that. Why is he excited about that? It is what he wanted to hear because it's true. And so that means Peter actually received something, some knowledge directly from the Father, who Jesus loves and will do anything for. There's, this is a breakthrough. And so he's so excited, he kind of like, it's almost like he writes this little hymn about Peter. He says, and I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Whoa. <laughs> Probably Peter wasn't expecting that response. Um, we tend to talk in Protestant circles about how Catholics like to misinterpret this verse and say that Peter... Um, that this is the place where Jesus made Peter the first pope, and then the whole pope, papal succession thing came from this, and we don't believe that that's correct, and I don't believe that that's correct. But recently I was reading something, they're all, I have taught this here before, um, that the word for Peter, rock, 
and the word that Jesus says, I, on this rock I will build my church, they're two different rocks. And the rock that Peter, that Jesus says he will build his church on is a big, huge, giant boulder like the one in the basement. And the one that Peter is is like a little pebble. I think that's good to keep in mind. But I also think that maybe sometimes we miss something that's happening here. How exciting this is for Jesus. He's actually making a pun on Peter and the big giant foundation of the church that's unshakable because Peter has gotten something true. So no, Jesus is not saying you're the Pope and the whole church depends on you and every Pope after that. That's not what, what he's saying. But he is excited because Peter got something from the Father and so he is raising Peter up to his level, which we've been talking about this whole series. God wants to raise his people up to his level, not on our terms, on his terms. This is what he wants for all of us. So now that Peter has made this declaration, now that there is at least one person in this group of 12 who is really finally sure who Jesus is, Jesus begins to trust them with the rest of the game plan. He's mentioned the cross before. He said, take up your cross and follow me and all this stuff, but it's been kind of along the lines of the parables, and now it's starting to get real. And so he's starting to spell things out a little more. And he's basically saying, those guys whose yeast I was telling you to avoid, they are going to make me suffer. They're going to kill me. But on the third day, I will be raised to life. This is the sign of Jonah thing. And then the same Peter, who got this word from the Father, says, Never, Lord. This shall never happen to you. And Jesus as excited as he got when, Jesus, when Peter said he was the son of God, is just as vehemently sh shutting that down. He says, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. What? <laughs> Why is he so... He called his friend Satan. Why would he do that? Well, okay, but something about, if, if Peter is part of the rock on which Jesus will build his church, then something that Peter said was also satanic. What was it about what Peter said that was so bad? He just said, no, you're not going to suffer and die, and why is that satanic? Okay, that's one thing. He's kind of calling him a liar. Okay, he's telling Jesus to put his will before the Father's. He is telling Jesus to do the kinds of things that Satan in the wilderness told Jesus to do, which is establish your kingdom. You're the, you're the Christ, the, the son of the living God, so you establish your kingdom in the way that we understand, we in the world understand as the right way to establish a kingdom. You get a good following, you get some good PR, you get some power, and you are going to control this place. And that is not the way of the kingdom that Jesus has been trying to teach everybody since the beginning of this gospel and this sermon series. I think maybe one of the things that's happening here is Jesus just told Peter, I'm going to build my church on this rock, this truth that God revealed to you. 
And whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven, and Peter's trying it out. No, this won't happen to you. But it has to happen. Because Jesus has to become king by the methods of the kingdom, not by the methods of empire. This critique is beyond goes beyond Jesus just being grumpy. This critique is more serious than annoyance. Peter received a revelation from the Father, but he's also showing that he is still susceptible to the old yeast. The old yeast of power and control and fame and people saying good things about me and maybe life being a little easier and can we just have this better? I don't want to suffer. Um, he is presenting the satanic temptation to avoid the self-sacrificial suffering that saves others. Because it's about him. He's trying, like Paul said, what Peter presents is what Satan presents, which is to put ourselves first. What's that? Who is it? Is it or isn't? Oh, Peter is really not infallible. Correct. Right. Like, like the Pope's. Right. <laughs> Peter is not infallible. Correct. Um, so this tendency, this human tendency to want to take the easy way out, to want to control things, to want to be famous, to want to be, to have the applause, to not have to suffer, is found all over the world, but in this case, it also smells like the yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, who try to do all these controlling things through scripture itself. We need to be careful of the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees, too, because it is really easy for us to get tied into our own good ideas about things. They may originate in Scripture, but they can very, very easily but subtly twist around until they become about us. And I think we're seeing this in branches of the church throughout this country, but also in other countries where, um, and it doesn't even really matter if it's liberal theology or conservative theology, it's everywhere. There are always people who are kind of gatekeepers, who keep the status quo and say, this is what the Bible means, and we need to be interacting with the Bible for ourselves and together, and listening to the Holy Spirit, listening to the Father, we have to be careful of the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees because it's very easy to want to make things easier for ourselves or not have to suffer or think that we have some sort of, that the Bible grants us some sort of rights that maybe it doesn't. Jesus' reaction is more serious than annoyance, but it's also more hopeful because the Father revealed the truth to Peter once, and it actually got through, and so it can get through again. And so, Jesus uses this time to teach, to spell out the difference between the yeast of the kingdom of the heavens and the yeast of empire. Peter, and probably all of them, 
herd whatever you bind and whatever you loose in terms of empire yeast. Power, self-fulfillment. And so Jesus turns that around and he says to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves. We as followers of Jesus are not to put ourselves first. Binding and loosing and the keys of the kingdom can be all of ours as we acknowledge and follow Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of the living God, as we are being brought up to God's level. But being brought up to God's level, binding and loosing, having the keys of the kingdom, that stuff is not ever for the sake of me. It is not for our own personal gratification. Then Jesus says, they must take up their cross. Not only do we not put ourselves first, but we actually pick up the suffering that we are assigned. This is a little bit tricky. This can be misinterpreted, and people have misinterpreted it over the years, um, over the centuries, maybe even today. We, we know that suffering happens all over the world. We're seeing it, right? It's everywhere. God can redeem suffering. Everybody's going to experience some kind of suffering. We don't need to go looking for suffering because it's going to be there. However, suffering is part of the package in this life, and there is a way to suffer redemptively like Jesus, and there is a way for that suffering to be wasted. We don't want to just suffer. We also don't need to, if, if we see that God is, Jesus, we're following Jesus and Jesus is walking down a path and we are going to end up suffering down that path, we don't necessarily have to fight that suffering. We need to follow Jesus and be Christ-like in that suffering. We also don't want to inflict the suffering on other people. We don't want to be like, oh, well, Jesus said we're going to suffer and so I'm going to make life, I'm the pastor here, I'm going to make life super difficult for you because we're all supposed to suffer. So that is empire life. We, and we don't choose our own suffering, we don't assign ourselves suffering, because if we did that, we might actually make it not so suffery. <laughs> um, but we follow him. Following Jesus means... When the cross shows up, we pick up the cross that's assigned to us, just like he did. Following Jesus is what gives suffering meaning and even power to transform our lives and the lives of the people around us, and it unites us with Jesus in the places he united with us, the weak places. He says, for whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me, for me, he says, we'll find it. Jesus is life. Giving up our life for him in his name is the only way we can get out of the way enough to receive his life in our lives and be brought up to his level on his terms, not ours. And so he says, what good will it be for someone to gain the whole world, gain empire, gain power, gain control through the methods of empire, yet forfeit their soul. What can anyone give in exchange for their soul? 
seriously? That's a good question. For, he says, the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what they have done. Have they preserved the yeast of empire? Then any power and control they've had in this life will be all they ever experience. Or have they gotten rid of that yeast and bloomed and risen with the yeast of the self-sacrifice of the kingdom of the heavens? Those rewards, even to some extent, in some ways in this life, definitely in the next life, are beyond anything we could ask or imagine. Truly I tell you, Jesus says, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. All of these guys, these disciples that he's talking to right here, physically died, but they saw the Son of Man risen, like, right, resurrected, and they participated in the spreading of the yeast of the kingdom throughout the world, and that yeast has continued on and on, and we see churches infected by the old yeast, but there is still the new yeast that is spreading God's kingdom throughout the world. Some of us may live to see the literal return of Jesus, maybe we won't, but whether we do or not, we can all witness the Son of Man coming in his kingdom in the here and now in our own lives, and we can participate in it as he lives his life in us when we deny ourselves, pick up our crosses, and follow him. Let's pray. Lord, your teachings are not easy, which is maybe the point. We want to be honest with ourselves about where we're letting old yeast um, of our own self-interest get in the way of the work that you're wanting to do and get in, get in the way of us following you. Sometimes, though, we just don't even really know what it looks like to follow you in certain situations. We ask that you'll help us to keep you in view and listen to you well and to obey when we hear your voice. We ask this in your name. Amen.